very much, everybody. I'm delighted uh, to welcome Trish Greenhalgh, Professor of Primary Care Health Sciences in the Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at Oxford. We, Trish joined our team sort of this year, and we're absolutely delighted to have her expertise. And Trish studied medicine, uh, medical, social, and political sciences at Cambridge and clinical medicine at Oxford uh, before training as an academic <coughs> GP. And so she's one of those people who can marry the social sciences as a trained social scientist with the med medical studies. And she's going to be talking tonight about theorising with narrative, about storytelling, how careful analysis of stories can help us rise above the ontological desert of behaviour change research. Pass over to Trish. Right, thank you very much. Um, so, uh, my name is Trish Greenhouse. I'm going to talk about theorising with narrative. And uh, when I was waiting to give this lecture, three of you uh, came up to me and said, it's a bit of a scary title, isn't it? Um, and one person said, this word ontological, I've added to words like epistemological and triangulation as, as things I've got to put into Google and learn about. So. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about the word ontological. What it means is, what's going on? You know, what's going on here? What is the nature of reality? Um, and add that to epistemology, which is how do we know what's going on? Um, so what I mean by the ontological desert is a lot of behavior change research doesn't really go very deep doesn't isn't very rich about what's going on you know the very nature of behaviorism is all about stimulus and response and all that kind of thing and the trouble is in certain areas when you've got very complex social determinants of health socio-cultural influences behavior change research just doesn't get you very far that's that's my personal view before I say anything more, um, I want to acknowledge funding from particularly from the European um, Framework 7 programme, actually, and also from the National Institute for Health Research, who very kindly give me some money for being a senior investigator, but also the many members of the, the team that I've been working with on something called the GIFT study, and I've got a list of them later. Um, okay, then. So this is about storytelling. You're four days into a five-day qualitative research course. We all know that a narrative is a story, but what's a story? Ah, a collection of reflections on something someone's been through. So the idea that a story is told retrospectively and it's about events that unfolded. Great start. What else in stories? Yeah, it usually has a beginning and sometimes has an end. Um, Brian Hurwitz is fond of saying that a story is something with a beginning, a muddle, and an end. Um, and actually, the muddle is quite important, isn't it? I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be Harry Potter. It could be anything. But there's some, what, what Aristotle called trouble. Something happens to make it a story. Because if you just kind of dum-de-dum-de-dum, -de -dum, everything just carries on, it's not a story, really. So it has to be some, some, some trouble in the middle of it. And then it's how you got out of the trouble. What else about stories? Yeah. Journey. Go on, tell us more. Um, so, so it's events unfolding in, in an order. Yes, yes, it, it's sequential. It's events unfolding in an order. Um, quite like that, yeah? Okay, what have I got down then? I don't need too much audience participation. I'll go off my script. Okay, so Aristotle said there's five defining features of, of narrative. The first is chronology, the unfolding over, over time. The second is some kind of setting, you know, once upon a time in the middle of a big wood, whatever. Um, the stage on which the drama unfolds. Thirdly, characters, people, 
animals, robots these days, androids, um, who get in and out of trouble. And then trouble, a breach from the expected, and finally, plots. You sort of got this when you were, we were talking, uh, you know, with the suggestions you made. The use of various literary devices, the narrative scholars among you will be better than me at naming those, um, to depict what I've called narrative causality. Some, such and such happened because of such and such. And it's a narrative causality, not a statistical causality. And actually, those of you who come from quantitative backgrounds might have find this, found this aspect of qualitative research a bit, you know, hang on a minute, what's correlating with what? Well, it's not about correlation, is it? It's about a literary causality. The, the um, example I sometimes use is, is the Dursleys kept Harry Potter in a cupboard. Why did they keep Harry in a cupboard? Because he was a wizard. And it's that word because, and he didn't like wizards, you know. And you put these things together um, using these literary devices, not just to, to, to depict what happened, but also to depict your characters as good or bad people. Um, so that was what Aristotle called plot. And he was really keen on plot, you know, unless you've got a plot, you haven't got a story. Jerome Brunner amazing guy, um, still alive, I understand, at the age of about 99. Last time I was in touch with him, he was still teaching at the age of about 96. And Brunner worked right back with people like Jean Piaget. You know, he, he worked in the um, early days of psychology and he wrote a number of books about narrative, but you have to sort of take him from where he was. He, he came you know, he did his PhD and his postdoc work at the heyday of behaviorism, where everything was stimulus response. That was what psychology was. And he said, no, 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 psychology is about meaning. Uh, and he wrote brilliant work on the narrative structure of experience. Narrative is evidence, but it's not the same kind of evidence as statistical evidence. Narrative seeks to persuade. However, not all evidence is narrative. Yeah, so um, if I give you an example of a narrative, you would say, well, that's, that's just anecdote. That's very atypical. On the other hand, some narratives, you, you look at it and you say, well, not only do I find that plausible, but it also resonates with my own experience of similar situations. Um, and what Brunner said was there's two types of evidence. There's logico-deductive evidence, logico-deductive causality, and there's narrative causality. This book, Acts of Meaning, is really very short. You can buy it from Amazon for about six pounds, you know, in a second-hand bookshop, and it, it, it'll take you no more than a day to read. And it's, it's really very, very well explained. Okay. Let's go off and collect some stories. Now, I've got a biased sample here, because you're all the people who, who feel strongly enough about qualitative research to pay a large amount of money to come on this course. Um, is collecting stories research? Who says yes? OK, about a third of you. And who says no? One person says no. And who says, that's a stupid question, or I don't know, or I'm on the fence? Yeah, a couple. Yeah, it depends. It depends. And that you're all chorusing, it depends. Sure. Um, a few years ago, I got interested in this question. And I put together something called a Delphi panel, along with Tom Wengraff, to ask this question. Is it research? Is it good research? And this piece of work began 
when we um, had each had um, applications to do research turned down by ethical committees, ethics committees. And I got one study turned down by an ethics committee to say, what you're asking is not research. Um, you're not doing anything invasive, meaning you're not taking a blood sample or something like that. I mean, it's not, not a lot that's more invasive than asking someone to tell their entire life story into a tape recorder. But at the time, um, the ethics committees or some of the ethics committees were simply just turning this down, saying this, this ain't science. Um, so that's what led us to this story. Do you know what a Delphi panel is? You, you, I mean, look it up. I won't spend a long time explaining it. You basically get a panel of experts of different kinds, people who are scholars in the field, people who are actually doing the work, and then you give them a number of statements or you ask them to help you generate statements, and then they vote as to whether they agree with those statements, and then you revise the statements and send them all around again. You can do it by email. Um, and uh, it, it's quite a good way of sort of reaching an expert consensus. Um, and this is what we came up with after about you know, nine months of going back and forth around this, this panel of experts. What do you think of that? Happy with the definition of research? You can see it's a bit bland because we're trying to sort of keep people happy. We don't want to, you know, and all the extreme views were sort of filtered out by this Delphi process. Um, so, so in order to decide whether storytelling and story gathering is research, you've got to define what research is. So it's about contributing to new knowledge. Story, yeah, okay, that was pretty much what you defined the story as. Those of you who thought narrat collecting narratives was not research, was that because you thought the stories might not be true? Uh, I think I would look at the other one. And I think it's because the story is just a story. The story is just a story, yeah. Say it again. The, the research depends on the researcher, not, not the story. The research depends on the researcher, not the story. This is good. <laughs> Come on. That's pretty much it. <laughs> but what do you mean when you say the research depends on the researcher? Yeah, because, oh, okay, because uh, the story is there. You, you, the story is, a, is, is an object. You, uh, everyone has stories. Mm -hmm. uh, can question about people, about stories, interview people, but then if that's not analyzed, if that's not structured, yep. it's not a research, it's, it's only the narrative. So a story in and of itself is just a story. Yeah, I agree with you. In order for that story to become research, it, something else has to happen, is what you're saying. Yeah, interesting, that's absolutely right. So. I'm not going to go through this in enormous detail. If you're interested, you can, you can look up this paper. It's in medical education. Um, or I'll send it to you if you want. Um, what does narrative research consist of then? Just collecting any old story for any old purpose is not research. But let's just tighten it down. Story gathering. Collecting stories that have already been told or written. You know, getting onto the internet and finding people's blogs and then saying, that's my data set. That could be research. Story eliciting, that's the most common. Going along and asking a participant to tell a story. And that's what they do, of course, with Health Talk Online. Then there's story interpreting, actually drawing meaning from the stories. And story collating, collecting several stories and bringing them together and synthesizing them. OK, if that is done with the explicit intention of furthering a body of knowledge, OK, that 
will count as research. Um, one of the people I worked with once was the, um, what came on one of my courses, was the ombudsman whose job it was to collect complaints and respond to complaints in the NHS. Um, and what he wanted to do was analyse the complaints letters and write research papers on it. So you can't do that. You know, it's not why they wrote you, <laughs> right? They wrote the complaints, but you know, they were they were narratives. They were very powerful narratives. But of course, to convert those into research, you'd have to write back to people saying, "Would you mind?" etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, firstly. Any research has to be, you know, systematic. You have to have a question. You have to think about your study design, your sample size, all that kind of thing. Um, and particularly this last, see if this works. Good with these. G, the researcher's awareness of the possibility of error and the steps taken to minimize or take account of this. So that applies for quantitative research, qualitative research, whatever. Um, and it's really, really important. Are you being reflexive about the possibility of error or distortion or perspective or bias or whatever? Um, and what are you doing to, to, to minimize that? There is also an issue in research, and I think the example I'm going to give you will, will highlight this, that either when you go out and collect a story or when you take an existing story and turn it into research material or seek to do that, you take on ethical duties towards the storyteller. And if, have, you, have you had the look at the Health Talk um, videos yet? Yeah, some of you have. If you haven't, just put Health Talk into Google and you'll find lots and lots of uh, videos of people talking about their illnesses. I was at a conference in London yesterday and someone showed a very powerful video of a guy who was dying of cancer and all the rest of it. Now, once you've heard that story, once you are collecting it and once you've got it in your data set, you have duties towards the person who told it. Honesty, you're not going to just cherry pick quotes like the press do sometimes with, with uh, well, any, all of us really, to do no harm, to make sure that really this is a person who's told you a story. You know, if you're going to stick it on the internet or, or publish it in a journal, have you thought about the effect that will have on the person? All sorts of issues around consent um, and confidentiality. Of course, if the person is a, agreeing to have their video onto the internet, that's a different kind of confidentiality from, um, you know, if they would like to remain anonymous. And so there's an ongoing negotiation. I'm sure you, you, have, um, you have talks on research ethics, yes? Yeah, okay. Let me tell you about this uh, GIFTS program then. So the principal investigator is not me, it's a, a diabetologist and geneticist called Graham Hitman, who's based at Bart's uh, Health Trust in London. And it was FP7 funded, enormous amount of money actually, but then this went across, I think, eight different countries and 18 different centers. And the big uh, chunk of money went on the sort of genetics and the, um, and the big randomized controlled trial. And I got a tiny bit of money, I actually got 44,000 pounds out of the 3 million euros um, to do the little qualitative side salad. Uh, and some of us who are in qualitative research are always rather cynical about this kind of work, you know, that people come up to you and say, can I put you on my grant application? Because in amongst this enormous great genetic study, we'd like to put a little bit of qualitative tinsel. Please, can you collect some narratives? Um, and, and that'll kind of jazz up our, our rather boring genetics, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, in fact, I normally say no to these, but, but Graham's a good bloke and he, he really does get 
the, the, the socio-cultural stuff. And he really did want to do this, not just as a bit of tinsel. So I was work package nine, storytelling. Um, this is a paper from someone else. This, this is just a sort of bit of background. Why on earth would you need storytelling in a genetics study? And this is what I want to talk about today. Um, epigenetics. Do you know, how much, does anyone know about epigenetics? Anyone, you know, we haven't got a, oh, someone's going like that. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the study of changes in organisms caused by modification of gene expression rather than the alteration of genetic code. So two people have got the same gene, but somehow one of them expresses it in a, in a more advanced way than the other, that kind of thing. Um, and of course, all sorts of things affect gene expression. And this is not my field, but I've been working with these people because actually a lot of things that happen in our lives affect the expression of our genes. So this paper, which was in The Lancet in 2011, type two diabetes, big pandemic. Now what they say here um, in amongst a lot of other things is a very sort of detailed technical paper is that in women with gestational diabetes, in other words, women who did, weren't diabetic before they got pregnant, and they're now diabetic when they are pregnant, and, hope, and then they're going to get become non-diabetic again after pregnancy. So, um, in women with gestational diabetes, um, two things give you problems. One is overnutrition, in other words, eating more than you need to eat, and the other is under-exercising taking less exercise than, than would be recommended, that leads to what we call metabolic programming. Okay, the sort of, you know, there's a sort of couch potato metabolism here where there's different hormones and different genes come out. That will increase that woman's risk of subsequently developing type two diabetes, but it will also lead to metabolic programming in the fetus in that the environment in which that fetus is developing and its genes are becoming expressed, that that will increase the risk of type two diabetes in the next generation. And where I worked until recently in the East End of London, there 50% of diabetes in uh, secondary school children is now type two. In other words, when I was at medical school, type two diabetes was something you got when you were in your 60s. But if you're from an ethnic minority in the East End of London, it's something that you might well get when you're 13 or you know whatever. So, that, and this is really, quite worrying in terms of a sort of epidemiology and the risks and things like that. So uh, it's a big problem. So of course the geneticists say, well, you're gonna have genes for diabetes, but I've got genes for diabetes. My father had type two diabetes, but I'm not diabetic. Why not? Because I try not to overeat and under, I mean, I, you know, I try not, yeah, whatever, do lots of exercise. Now, so that's the sort of epigenetics in a nutshell. Solutions to this problem will include, and this is a quote from the paper, improvements in maternal public health programs in pre-transition and post-transition populations. What do we mean by pre-transition? Um, the, the, the idea that um, 
economic transition. So, so you know, if you live in rural China, you've got a low uh, risk of diabetes because everyone sort of eats quite healthily and runs around all the time because no one can afford a car. Post-transition is, you know, when we're all sort of driving around in our cars in cities and, and working in office jobs, etc. So that's one thing, improvements in maternal public health, but also provision of education to relevant groups about the risks of rapidly adopting Western lifestyles could be considered. Um, are you happy with that as qualitative researchers? They've got, you know, sort of 12 pages of clever genetics. And then they say, well, this is going to be expressed differently when women eat too much, exercise too little when they're pregnant. So there we go. We're going to, we're going to um, provide them with education. You're not happy. Why not? It's a, first of all, the whole obesity and diabetes is a hugely complex issue. Yeah. Uh, and the, the whole subject has been hijacked with people with single issues. Yep. Uh, uh, and saying, oh, it's, uh, it's fizzy drinks, or oh, it's McDonald's. Yep. Or, and we failed to address the problem because of the lack of a holistic approach. Yep. Uh, and also the lack, you know, and you've, you've expressed, you know, it's around walking, cycling, a, a, just being active and not being overweight, mm. for which there are lots of solutions. But uh, the environment that we live in, you know, built around cars, mm. and so the, the element to which that addresses the, the post-transition populations, it's, we have to be really clear, what is it about that post-transition population? And so if people aspire to, you know, in the dishwasher, uh, <laughs> uh, and then the built environment, then that's, in some respects, we are taking away from the individual you know, uh, through normalization of behaviors mm. their chance to radically change their. So you can tell them you should walk more, but if it's just the environment, mm. let's see, in the United States, where everyone drives, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, that's brilliantly put. I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, I think uh, I would add to that the, the very you know, it, it is over, it's overly simplistic. It's what I call an ontological desert. Um, so the, the assumption here, the, the pedagogically and culturally naive model of behavior change is that, um, you know, the learner here is the patient, the person is an empty bucket, and you'd put in education in the top, um, like a sort of dollop of education, and then that would change their behavior. It isn't going to work like that. And anybody who's a clinician knows that it doesn't work like that. Anyone who's tried to get either you know, their parent or their child to change their behavior by telling them it would be a very good idea if you did X, it's just not the way any of us behave. Um, so we submitted this paper. Actually, it's been published now. I think this is, this is an old version. Um, but if you look it up in BMC Medicine, it's, it's actually pretty much top of the hit parade in BMC Medicine. It's been downloaded lots of times and things. People are very excited about this paper now, which is good, because when I wrote the lecture, I wasn't sure whether they were going to like it. Um, so we used narrative to try and unpack what was going on in South Asian women with diabetes in pregnancy. And this is a it's a great picture but it's a bit complicated to get your head around i'm going to talk you through it the the horizontal axis um you know starts here when you're born and you go along here and then this is when you're old and presumably you die about here so this is your your life and then down here is the smallest unit which is your genes and well, I know there's probably people who go under further below that, but never mind. Then you've got your molecules, you've got your cells, you've got your your systems, 
And then here you've got what you do. This is human behavior. And then up here is your family, your social networks, your groups. Then you've got your workplace and your school. Then you've got national. And then you've got the global level. That's things like, I don't know, the Grexit or whatever, would, you know, would, all the things that are going to affect, for example, the, you know, the global economic situation, which might affect whether you can afford to buy food, all that kind of thing. So it's actually a very easy diagram because it's saying this is how you live. You know, this is your life. And then this is... Um, the level at which we're analysing it. And this is a lot of sociological gobbledygook, but what it's saying is all these things are interrelated. And the thing to really notice that there's a bit in here that's really simple, which is it's all about human behaviour. In the end, it's how we behave. It's how we you know, The reason why different groups, different age groups, genders, ethnic groups have different outcomes is largely because we behave differently. But we behave differently for all sorts of reasons, partly because you know, the genes are firing things, but also because all these social things. And particularly, they looked at opportunities and constraints. To what extent, for example, does the built environment create opportunities for exercise or whatever? Um, so things are embodied at the level of human behavior. Um, OK, so what were we doing? First of all, we were trying to understand these multiple influences um, on behaviour, which in turn are the risks to the metabolic health of a, of a South Asian woman and her unborn child. We wanted to theorise, that is, generate potential explanations um, using this nested hierarchy model of how these different influences interact and build over time, which is exactly what my colleague was suggesting we need to do. Um, I didn't brief him before, by the way. Um, and then we wanted to inform the design of interventions, because of course, interventions are far too simplistic. They're all predicated on this empty bucket thing, you know, or the, that, um, what's that behaviour change, um, you know, are, are you an early, are you, um, what's the one where you, you, when you're giving up smoking, you're trying to persuade someone to give up, go on. No, it's not the cycle of change. Motivational yeah, motivational interviewing. You know, yeah, that sometimes works a bit, but don't, when you're using it, don't you think, hang on a minute, there's all sorts of things happening with this person that aren't in this model. Um, so I'm not saying the model's, you know, completely useless, but we wanted to kind of get underneath that. So what did we do? Well, our sample was 45 women who had currently or previously diabetes in pregnancy and we decided that could be either gestational or pre-existing and the reason is that all the risk factors for gestational diabetes are pretty much the same as the risk factors for type 2 diabetes um, which is this sort of you know the energy balance that isn't right they either joined a story sharing group where they you know they came to a group and told stories in the group um, and we recorded those or um, we went and interviewed them at home. So the original design was that they would all come and join in story-sharing groups, which we'd run very successfully for the last 15 years with middle-aged people with diabetes. They love coming to story-sharing groups. You try doing that with, with sort of 21-year-old who's got one child, is pregnant with another, and who's kind of doing all sorts of things around the house. They, they actually, very few, they wanted to come to the groups, but they couldn't. Um, and so we went to their houses and interviewed them. And, and it turned in, it, I think about... In the end, almost two-thirds of the women were interviewed at home. Um, and we just asked them to tell the story. Tell me the story. 
We use narrative prompts. Now, you've probably done semi-structured interviewing. You should go home and when you're sort of talking to your partner about what they did today, instead of saying, what did you do today, dear? Do them a semi-structured interview. Go some lists and start asking them. You can have a pretty funny conversation, aren't you? Um, a narrative interview is where you just go in and say, well, tell me about your diabetes. And you use your own curiosity to um, prompt the next stage. You know, oh, why, why were you so upset at that point? Or, oh, tell me more. Or what happened next? You know, those kind of, the kind of questions you would have just in a normal conversation little bit more systematic than that. And then, of course, we translated and transcribed them. Um, is someone asking a question? Yeah. Are you okay for a question? Yeah, definitely. Is, is this approach likely to be far more fact-based? Because it seems to me, for example, in sustainability and behavior change, there's what's called a values-action gap. So is environment important? Yes, it's very important. I believe in environment. It's really important to me. But they don't actually do it. So actually, there's a gap between what they believe and what they do, yep. which actually I think is a latent opportunity, not necessarily a problem. But then actually, and then you don't get, so if you're saying, do you recycle? Yes, I recycle. But if you look at observed behavior of recycling. Yeah, there, there's a gap. Yeah, yeah. But if you actually ask somebody through your process, you get away from, tell me what you actually did. Tell me the story. You get... Really I th you might be getting closer to the real, but I, I don't think you'll get facts because facts are something else. You know, facts, you, you'd get something that the person, nah, you'd get something that the person genuinely, unless they're trying to deceive you, but assuming they're not, you'd get their version of events just like you do when you ask your two kids who've been fighting who started it. You know, each of them genuinely believes that the other one started it and they will tell you a story that will, you know, justify that. Um, but in a way, they're neither of them facts and they're, they're both interpretations. Let me go on. So how do we analyze this narrative data? Because what you get with, with any qualitative data, it doesn't have to look messy. It doesn't really look like data at all until you've done something with it. Well, the first thing, and this is, this is quite important if you ever want to do narrative research, the first thing to do with stories is read them. And read them again and again. Read them three or four times, go through them, mark things in the margin, you know, put exclamation marks at the interesting bits, until you are familiar. That's called immersion. Then there's description, where you're really pulling out what's going on in this story? You know, can I just say, well, what, where, what's the beginning? What's the model? What's the end? That kind of thing. And then there's theorization. And I'm going to illustrate theorization, which is give us an explanation. Try and get all that kind of nested hierarchy stuff to map to the stories or the stories to map to the theoretical approach, which I, I've introduced you to. Then there's illustration, which is either pick a particular narrative, um, a real narrative that you in, from your data set that illustrates the really the points you're trying to make or make one up in other words generate another narrative which is kind of representative of all the narratives but which is a bit of this one and a bit of that one and I'll show you that because you know people have, have commented that hang on a minute are you really allowed to make one up um, when you, you know because of course you if you take a, a real narrative You've then got the confidentiality problem you know, when you're publishing. Um, and then validation, which is to go back to the people who gave you their stories 
and the, the advocates and the workers who are working with, with uh, these women, um, some of whom are quite poor, some of whom are illiterate, etc., feed back to them, this is what we think your stories were telling. Is that, you know, does that resonate with you? And the sort of respondent validation, again, is, is, is a, a very important aspect of qualitative research. Um, we did use an Excel spreadsheet. We did use a little bit of a framework analysis, which you've probably been taught, um, just to sort of organize the data and become familiar with it. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why are your thoughts on responding validation? Because what do you do if your participant disagrees with your interpretation of their story? What do you do if your participant disagrees with your interpretation of their story? Have you got an example of when that happened? No, but I've always, so I've, I've never really used respondent validation mm. because with the rationale that I am interpreting someone's mm. story account and at that point you're stepping away from the story, whereas as the storyteller whose story it is, it's your version of your account. Mm. How can you um, validate someone well, first of all, interpretation yeah. of your story? So what I've done in terms of respondent validation, I've taken back the sort of, um, you know, my, my interpretation of all the stories. Yep. Yeah, that's what we did. We didn't go back and respond and interpret a, a single oh, story. Right. No, 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 exactly that, that we, we, and I think precisely for that reason is that we go back, and that's another reason for actually creating a new story to say, this is the kind of data we've been getting. These are the kind of interpretations we're getting. Um, and these are the kind of emotions that are coming through. Does this resonate? And, and, and people are actually very good at looking at that and saying, yeah, that's pretty good. Actually, she was more upset than I would have been, but I can see that. And, and so, yeah. But yes, the whole business of respondent validation is a bit difficult. The other reason it's difficult is that if anyone's ever done this, usually your research participants are not that interested in looking at what you've done anyway. You know, it's all, we think it's a very worthy thing. We think it's ethical, but in the end, they've usually disappeared or they don't reply to your email or they're not in when you visit them, etc. Okay, so let me give you some results. First result is, well, what were the stories about? Um, so one of the things we found was the stories had different time courses. There were some short-term stories, some medium-term, and some very long-term. And the short-term stories, of course, were about their pregnancy. And they depicted the pregnancy, most of the, these women depicted the pregnancy as absolutely ghastly. So you, you go onto the NCT website or something, and women would say, oh, no, it's wonderful. I felt like a fantastic, you know, I did my yoga, and, I, you know, it was great, and I had a massage, and all that. We didn't get that at all. You know, we got this, this horrible experience of pregnancy, very, very stressful and out of control and really difficult trying to find, uh, you know, um, trying to <coughs> keep, the diabetes controlled. And, and the second theme that came out was the idea that exercising made them ill, made them tired, it made them, um, it made their feet swell, it made them breathless. Someone's nodding. Why are you not? Is this? <laughs> well, I've, I've done similar work. Go on. All right. Okay. So, uh, I mean, one of the things that came up in my research on types of diabetes in India and in Pakistan was sweating. Sweating, lots of sweating. Yeah, it makes them sweat. Um, totally. Um, and actually, we um, cited other research. You might have cited yours, actually. I'll talk to you afterwards. Um, 
the idea that, that the very things people were recommending were making these women feel ill. And so they might do a little bit of exercise, but then they'd have to go to bed because they felt so awful. And the idea that they felt much better when they ate for two. I mean, I mean some of them use this expression, eating for two, but you know, the, the idea that eating, particularly eating rice, made them feel better. And accounts of advice, and other women would say to them, go to bed, eat more rice, that thing. Um, but if you look, any, any of you have done sort of discourse analysis, a lot of people advise me to eat this or eat that. This is absolutely part of the culture, you know, advising women what to eat. It is, you know, it's also part of a white British culture, frankly, when you're pregnant, everyone chips in with a bit of advice. So I followed their orders rather than just the doctors. I think there's a brilliant um, hierarchy here, but also orders, you know, um, the community, the, the, the peer group, the female peer group is allowed to order you what, you know, what you eat. So the medium term stories were about what goes on in our family, in our community. And this, the recurring storyline of a woman's work is never done. That's my metaphor. Um, but what there wasn't in, in the women we interviewed was any sense of what I've called or what other people have called the tailorization of domestic time. So, you know, many of you will go back home and then you'll say to your partner, look here, I've taken the rubbish out and, you know, you've cooked supper because I was at a lecture. So it's probably my turn to do this. And so you're all the time you've got the taxi meter ticking as to how much work you've done to either bath the kids or cook the dinner or whatever. That didn't happen in, I'm not saying it never happens in Asian communities, I'm saying that the, the women we interviewed, who were mostly quite poor East End, um, Bangladeshi, Gujarati women, um, that there was this continuing expectation on them to be domestically active. It was never finished. And that was why they couldn't come to the groups. Stories of progressive weight gain over years, you know, in my first pregnancy, I put on a bit of weight, in my second pregnancy, I put on a bit more, blah, 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 blah. And that was completely normalized. And then there was past experiences with the health service. Um, a very common one, I'm probably up there because people get very upset about this, is the sign on the wall in the GP surgery, one appointment, one problem. So you go in there and say, I've got a sore foot, that's it. If you've got a cough as well, you've got to make another appointment. And so there was, at the end of the, the GPs were not saying, got all the time in the world for you. You want to come along and tell me about your planned pregnancy? I'd be happy to listen. It was the opposite to that. Um, so actually, they had much better experiences with the hospital services than, than with the GPs. And that is probably something to do with the workload that the GPs have. Um, a lot of stuff about um, finishing stuff up. All I've become is a waste. And this sort of idea that this inexorable gain in weight. Um, it was somehow expected and, and normalized. And then the long-term stories about the distant past, about genetic heritage, about everyone in our community is at high risk. My grandmother had it, you know, back in Bangladesh, so-and-so had it, all that kind of thing. Um, but also about cultural heritage, about the, um, you know, the, the, this is, these are collective societies. They're not, they're not your Californian, let's have some me time. Um, and material heritage, food insecurity, memories of the Bangladesh famine from people who weren't even born when the Bangladesh famine happened, that it was part of the collective memory. And if you know, and if you know the literature on food insecurity, you'll know that a, a, a community memory of famine 
is going to make people more likely to eat a lot when they've got it because subconsciously you think, well, at some point you may not have it. Okay. Um, and of course, this stuff about back home, back home, even though you've never been to Bangladesh, they, it's still known as back home and everybody is healthier and they didn't get diabetes. This, well, this isn't a myth. This is true, except that if you're in Dhaka now, it's uh, not true anymore, etc. Okay, so let me link these up because now I've got a timeline the present here, and then this is the ancestral past, the distant past, the recent past. Got it? And you've got the short-term stories, the medium-term stories, and the long-term stories, and these are all nested in. So if you look at the data, they don't say, I'm now going to tell you a long-term story. It's the sort of little fragments that you have to tease out analytically that here we've got a very short-term story. This happened three months ago. Here we've got one of 10 years ago, and here we've got one um, you know, back home was actually when my grandparents lived in Bangladesh, sort of thing. So we drew that out, and that was that was quite fun unpacking that. I'm going to give you a fictionalised narrative now. I'll let you read that. So everything in this is something that's that reflects the stories that we got. So, for example, the stillbirth. You know, I was asked by a previous group, well, hang on a minute, how can you say there was a stillbirth? But actually, in our group of 45 women, there were quite a few stillbirths that, that women talked about. And yet, statistically, you wouldn't expect that many. Um, but a few years ago, I was um, working with a group who were working on the confidential inquiry on stillbirths and deaths in infancy. And maternal diabetes is a very, very um, common link with stillbirth so you know this is this is not do you see so although i'm not saying this is statistically representative i'm bringing out themes that are quite important so this i think is quite important she you know she was getting advice she was getting education if you like but she was trying but you know this is there's a lot of things here that are going against this let me give you the next page of this narrative can you see how the narrative weaves together these different layers of influence? So you've got some physiological influences. This is something I'm quite interested in as a clinician. I, I originally trained as a diabetologist that actually it's not very nice being hungry and it's not very nice feeling tired. You know, when you're hungry, you get this urge to eat, especially if you're on insulin. Um, when you exercise and it makes you feel exhausted, those symptoms will stop you exercising. So it's not just the socio-cultural things, it's also the physiological influences here that, that I'm quite interested in. And you go right up to the sort of macro level of, these women didn't feel safe going out of doors. Their husbands wouldn't let them go out. I don't think my husband let me go out and exercise, you know, after dinner in the East End of London. Sometimes a mistake between the advice people are being given about calorie balance, you know, energy mm. in, energy out, and the difference between exercise, as in go mad, <coughs> go to the gym, do running, which somebody like yeah, that yeah, yeah. might struggle to, and the alternative just be active, which you might find far easier to do. And yeah. Absolutely, and so the exercise um, advice that comes totally disembodied from all everything else that's going on in Fatima's life she's not going to be able to 
operationalize it. It's not tailored to her, absolutely. Um, another thing that this story illustrates that the game was very common is Oh, she had the blood test and it showed that the diabetes had gone away. And so she's completely staggered two years later when she gets diabetes. Whereas actually, she was heading for diabetes. You know, you could see it, you know, in the story, but completely, um, it was a complete surprise. All right. So this is the model that we developed based on those uh, narratives. And as you know, I'm, I'm giving you a very superficial version of the narratives. Um, and you can see how we've adapted the diagram which I took from um, Tom Glass's work, um, where we've still got maternal behaviours in the middle, and we've got this energy input and energy expenditure. But here, what happens is these two things that happen. I mean, people focus on weight gain, but I think there's also a big issue around loss of physical fitness. It's like in the elderly, um, you know, a lot of them not in heart failure, they're just out of shape. Um, so what you have here is this weight gain and loss of fitness becomes the baseline for the next pregnancy. And so it all just gets worse and worse and worse. But in addition, you've got fetal programming here from this uh, adverse microenvironment in utero. So this fetus comes here and then when he or she is born, um, you know, they, they may have uh, a high birth weight if they're, if they're, you know, actually macrosomic, but they're actually starting off life on day one when they're born, they're already pre-programmed uh, to have problems. And then they're born into this environment here so that by the time this person is 18 and having her first pregnancy, she's, do you see what I mean? This is a vicious circle. So you could pick that apart. I'm sure, you, you know, people will. Um, although they haven't yet, but I, you know, th th this isn't the answer. This is, this is getting us a little bit, but hopefully it's getting us a little bit further on that sort of epigenetics um, track than the quote I gave you earlier on. Um, I love this quote from Glass and McCatty, whose, whose diagram I showed you initially. Human behavior is sandwiched inextricably between ecology and biology. There's a good one. Um, sorry, these aren't numbered right. Um, the rising prevalence, the astronomically rising prevalence in poor South Asians in particular is mediated by patterns of behavior in pregnant women, what they eat, how much exercise they take, that are very poorly matched to their metabolic needs. Narrative research can begin to unpack these multiple interacting influences. Speaking now, wearing my sociology hat, these behaviours, which are very much prompted by peer groups and the community pressure, um, were intimate in that they were deeply personal. They were familiar, that is, they were grounded in the richness of family relationships and traditions, and they were morally resonant. They were viewed as the right thing to do. And that is why these pregnancy-related behaviours that, you know, I as a GP think are not quite right, um, that is why they are so entrenched, they're so resistant to change. They're intimate, they're familiar, and they're morally resonant. The kind of education that we tend to offer South Asian women before, during, and after pregnancy um, is not going to work because it's not familiar and it's not morally resonant. We have to make health advice more culturally meaningful, and more morally resonant. And the way we might do that is by paying attention to the narratives. 
we need more imaginative interventions which are co-designed by families and communities to actually resonate more strongly with these nested narratives. So that, I think, is all I've got to say. Yes. I think we've got time for some questions. A couple of questions. Mm. Is there any quantitative evidence that uh, second or third or fourth children are more likely to get diabetes? It's a very interesting question. Um, I don't know. Someone is, has probably um, addressed that question, but you would have expected, wouldn't you? I mean, certainly in subsequent generations, um, the offspring of South Asian uh, mothers are getting it younger and younger. I do know that, but you're right. It, it um, we, we should... Please comment to the question. Yes, there are many quantitative studies. Um, I'm a Dr. Rahila from Pakistan, mm -hmm. with the diabetes, uh, gestation diabetes is quite prevalent. Uh, there are a couple of papers from my own department even. We have a maternal medicine expert, Dr. Raman mm -hmm. who published a couple of papers related to diabetes and increasing clarity, we call it. Ah. In fact, it's a five or six time that leads that makes you at more risk of developing diabetes. But that's the that's the mother. That's the mother. But has anyone followed up all those children? They're following up actually. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The, 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 these children are more prone to obesity and the other yeah. respiratory dysfunctions and the diabetes in later life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, it's, I should say that the GIFT study has um, partners in both Pakistan and Bangladesh, and actually, m m not most of the field, the, the big trials are being done in South Asia. But this qualitative study we did in the East End of London, um, partly because I didn't fancy living in, in Bangladesh for two years. Actually, I quite liked to live in Bangladesh for two years, but it didn't happen. Um, but you know what I mean? Um, yeah, who else had a hand up? Yeah. Oh, sorry, you're chairing, yeah. Well, I don't <laughs> No, you can. So you, you talked about this, this was about establishing what wasn't already known and, and, um, and the long, complicated words that I probably need to go and look up as well. Um, what, is, what do you feel would be the next stage in advancing this towards something that people can, can look at applying? Oh, I think, yeah, great question. I, I'm very interested in co-design as an approach, which is getting people to design the interventions that would work for them. So I've got a real problem with the MRC framework for developing complex interventions. And I can say that into a podcast that will be out on the internet. I think the idea that these experts are going to rigorously develop this perfect intervention and you know, test it in these clever trials, isn't gonna, that's not going to work. We, you know, I need to go to Tower Hamlets, get groups of people together saying, come on, what is going to work for you? And unless, you know, because only then will we really embed these sociocultural narratives into the intervention. Some of the most successful work that I did, and I didn't do very much of it, sadly, because I got distracted to other things, was working with the mosque, the local mosque in the East End of London, working with the imams, working with the... Uh, also with the women who, who work in the mosque, they're, they're you know, female religious scholars who really understand you know, the Quran, they understand the lives of the people that are trying to help. And, and as one of the imams said to me, and the word imam means teacher. They said, we are the ones that should be doing the teaching and doing the behavioral interventions. 
you are the doctors, you can bring some science to it. And I think if we could actually take the lead from communities and, and from you know the wise individuals in those communities who know far more than we do about, about what's going to work and what doesn't. Um, so that's where I would want to take this next. Um, obviously, when you have a narrative, it's an intensely personal approach, uh, mm. uh, even though you might aggregate individuals' narratives towards some commonality or conclusion or... or yeah, 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 totally. Uh, but so, um, I thought your conclusion was very powerful, but much of the public debate, let's say, on obesity and diabetes mm. is right up here, and the Daily Mail's got a lot yeah. to say about it. That well-known scientific so, journal, yeah. Tell, tell us about, because I thought... What you were saying is let's approach it from the individual and their community and their environment and their genetics. Mm. What, what does it mean for public policy and, and where the debates act and where the debate needs to change? Well, I think actually you can grow public policy from the community, yeah, from the bottom up. I, I, I think if you have an, a more enabling approach, and actually some examples in America of, of um, obesity schemes where they've taken a whole town and really, France. yeah, probably France as well, you know. Um, and then what happens is someone will say, gosh, look what they're doing in such and such a locality. Um, and of course you can't take that model and just replicate it everywhere. You ha still have to grow it from the ground up wherever you are. Um, but people can come along and, and take a look and say, oh, this is how it all works. And then go along and say, now how might we adapt that to work here? And it's, it's, it's a very different... I'm going to write a module on co-design, co-creation. I'm actually... Anyone's coming to SAPSI next week, I'm running a workshop on co-design of, of interventions, actually, with Claire Jackson, who's doing this in Australia. I want to ask my colleague here about your work on uh, South Asian women, about how it, this was yes, similar or different. It actually resonates. I mean, I did an ethnographic study, mm -hmm. so Uh -huh. student shoots. I did my PhD uh -huh. there and um, I did a Pakistani migrants. It was, uh -huh. it was mainly first generation. Mm. And so I looked at um, not necessarily um, women pregnant and having diabetes, but those generation with double diabetes once they moved to the UK. Mm. And um, absolutely, I mean, I had the privilege of listening to their narratives and at the same time bringing up the context um, and spending time. Um, yeah. Yeah. And definitely is the context, the social and economic background. Yep. It's, and I think in a way, anybody who's even vaguely sympathetic to qualitative research knows it's the context. But how do you unpack all that? And how do you get from saying, look, it's far more complicated than this behaviourist <laughs> stuff of educating women not to kind of succumb to their genes? Um, how do you get from that to an intervention that's going to work? And, it, you know, that is that is complex but then it's not impossible and we should be doing it um, one other element that i came across was a bit louder, sorry the sense of the individual it's different so there is a lot of emphasis on um, the person functioning in, in relation to the family rather than um, the person doing something for themselves yeah i'm person. i totally agree and actually um a colleague of mine, one of my researchers, was taking, you know, was taking one of these narrative um, interviews, and she's sort of halfway through it in a woman's flat, 
and there was a knock at the door and, and a group of friends arrived. So the woman immediately stopped the interview, cooked a beautiful, lovely, delicious meal. Everybody ate it and they sort of cleared up. And then she carried on with the interview. Now, the idea that you might say to people, actually, I've got someone here who's interviewing me. Could you come back a bit later? It just doesn't work like that. Someone's arrived, guests have arrived, right? That's it. You have to be hospitable. It wasn't, do you want a cup of tea? It was, all oh, right, you know, sit down, I'll do your full curry. And that, you know, I mean, you know, sort of, um, we have to remember the huge cultural expectations. And nothing brings that across more efficiently than narrative, I suppose. That's the, that's the argument. Sheila, you had a question. If you'd like to ask that in the nut, we'll have to finish. Mm. Okay, well, I, I really found, I, I enjoyed your talk a lot, mm. and I found your slides on the nested, I think it's called nested hierarchy. Nested hierarchy, well, that's what I've called it. Yeah, yeah. to be very, you know, uh, evocative. Um, but it seemed to me, and I, and I could be very wrong about this, or this is my superficial look in at your work, but there was a, a real emphasis on uh, the individual and individual behavior within mm. that whole mm. hierarchy so that in the end the, the advice was, you know, we should make educational interventions more culturally relevant and morally uh, mm. resonant. Um, but there seemed to be some element of sort of inevitability to the structure. So, I mean, even in the language of pre-transition and post-transition, it's sort of, there's kind of this evolution, the structure is just transition, you know, as it is, and that the, you know, the, the structure, the cultural structure of the rest it's, it's hard to change. It's hard to change, sure. isn't it? Um, but it's not impossible to change. No, I'm not saying it's um, impossible, but is it part of the project? Is it part of what you look at when you sort of say, well, what could we do with... We haven't started the co-design work yet. Yeah. Um, but certainly we've got another project going in the East End, actually, which is much more quantitative, where we're looking at pre-diabetes and actually using individual patient data from GP records to identify people who are very high risk of diabetes. And I'm working with geographers who are drawing maps and things. So it's a very interesting quantitative project. But now we're saying, well, all right, having identified 27,000 people in one borough of London who are at very high risk of developing diabetes, and they're all still quite young, um, what on earth are we going to do with them? So you could say, oh, we'll bring them in and send them to a dietitian. And on the strength of this, we say, well, that's not going to work. So well, what will you do then? Um, well, we could make the East End safer to exercise, or we could close down all those ghastly fried chicken shops. Or in the end, the reason why, and Harry Rutter is very good on this, the reason why we do individual interventions is at least you can try, whereas what you can't do is you know, change the way the East End is. Um, having said that, there's another project we're doing on the Olympic legacy in Newham. Um, well, we did change the East End hugely. We built the Olympic Stadium, swimming pool, running track, cycling track. Um, and the youngsters in Newham schools do not use those facilities. You know, we've got a paper in press at the moment on that. So oh, it's hard. Can I give a quick example about Newham uh, and Tower Hamlets? After the Olympics, they wanted people to exercise, and the London Cycle Campaign are particularly keen that more people should cycle. Yeah. And they really struggled to get ethnic minority people to get on a bicycle. And, but the one intervention which has worked really well is the buddy system, where a friend or colleague or somebody they know will take them and show them the route on a bicycle, and they do it together. So that the one you can tell somebody to That's bicycle, interesting. you can give them all the reasons to cycle, and they won't. Yeah. Do it, but if they go with somebody they know and trust, 
and they actually mm. share and do it together and you de-risk it for them. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, and, and actually we have been for, I mean, a good 15 years we've been doing group work for older, it's mainly women who come, but it's actually for both genders and any ethnic group. Um, and they've set up things like walking groups and parks, but it's got to emerge from what goes on in the groups. What you can't do is set up groups in the park or say, you know, and then expect people to turn up. It's got, it's got to be grown, it's got to evolve, is my view. Um, and when it does evolve, it can be quite good and quite powerful and enduring, which is what some of the American examples funded by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation have shown. But no, this is, this is tough stuff. Thank you so much, Trish. Thank you very, very much for that. Thank you. Yes.